Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoyed the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5, please. It's good to see you. Looks like everyone decided to come to the second service today. And when it's cold, people just move slow, I think. I think it's, people move slowly. The first service people, when they were here, they were, they were with it, all two of them. They were ready. <laughs> well, today we continue our series in the five solos where we're looking at the five kind of rally cries, resolutions, and kind of statements of change that needed to occur in the life of the church. But we've got to remember, as we said last week, is that these are not just historical landmarks that are, are neat to remember, that these are really powerful everyday realities for the Christian life of a Christ-honoring, gospel-centered life. And these five solas, these five only statements, are still bearing fruit in the Christian life today. Last week, we looked at sola scriptura, how scripture alone is the final authority over the, on earth of the life of a Christian. And the fruit of that is that you have a Bible. If you lived before the Reformation, you did not own a Bible. But now because of the fruit of God's grace in the Reformation, we have copies of God's Word. And that no pope, no priest, no pastor, no tradition, no seminary, no professor, no author can supplant and push aside the Word of God as having authority in your life. Just one quick example would be in the Reformation... And just like today, the Catholic Church really forbid their priests and nuns from getting married. And Luther, when he gave in to Sola Scriptura and saw that Scripture alone should guide our lives, he read in 1 Timothy 4 where it says, it is a doctrine of demons to forbid marriage. And he said, well, we're done with that. And so he got wine barrels and he started smuggling nuns out of their convents and taking them off to get married. Because he believed Scripture alone guides us. Let's get these nuns out of here and get them married. And there was this one who he could never arrange a spouse for. Her name was, I think, uh, Katie. And he just said, man, no one's going to marry you. If you don't get married the next year or two, I'll marry you just to rub it in the Pope's face. And they got married. So if you're looking to get married for some kind of reason, if you want to rub it in the Pope's face, that's one route you could go. Not the most romantic one I would recommend. But times were different then. And I bring that up to illustrate really just one thing, is that once you do believe the Scriptures are to be the guiding authority in your life, a shakedown begins to happen in your life. A crackdown on moralism and legalism and man-made traditions begin to run for the hills because the Scriptures become the guiding rule for your life. And the second principle we're going to look at in the Reformation is of grace alone, of sola Gratia, that back then and today, and maybe even people here, believe that salvation was attainable by your own effort. That you're almost like Hitch. You're 90% there and God comes 10. You're almost there, but you got to finish the rest. He's brought you pretty far or the inverse. You're almost there. You just need Jesus to give you a little boost. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. A kind of a sola bootstrapper mentality. But this is not reality. This is not the universe. The Reformation reminds us that we are not saved by our own effort, our own goodness, or even our own dedication to God, any abilities that we have. Rather, we are devastatingly dead in our sins. 
We can't even believe without His grace. We can't repent without His grace. We can't be raised from the dead without His grace. And the only way we keep believing is by His grace. The only reason we stay Christians is by His grace. And this is exactly what Romans 5 and 6 is putting on display through the Apostle Paul. So let's read, beginning in verse 1. And since these words come to us today in the very authority of King Jesus, let's stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of Christ and the Word of God. And the Spirit says, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, sola fide, faith alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ alone, solus Christus. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice and hope of the glory of God, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God." For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Holy Father, now... Would you help us by your Spirit to believe in grace alone, to see the ripple effects and the seismic shifts that occur when grace alone is grasped and lived and enjoyed. Help us now, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe in the free gift to live in accordance with the free gift that has abounded for many because of you. And it's in your name and by your obedience that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, at our house, I'm sure this occurs in your house as well at some point, I am, apart, I can't really think of any better title for it, I am kind of a boogeyman slayer in our house. If there's ever a monster, bump in the night, something in Ivy's room, especially when she was younger. And one of the Winnie the Pooh movies, there's this creature called the Baxen. Has anyone ever seen this? The Baxen? And they think he's a really bad guy, but he ends up being a really nice guy. But he's got weird horns and weird hair, and he is kind of spooky for a little bit. And Ivy would always have dreams about the Baxen or a boogeyman or whatever. And I would have to tell her every time, don't ever fear. I'm a boogeyman slayer. I will kill this boogeyman. I will cut his head off and put it on the fence. Don't ever worry about any boogeyman coming into your room, okay? As long as I'm here, you don't have to be afraid. She was like, okay. And same will I tell Oliver. There's nothing to be scared of. You're going to be fine. If there's a monster, I'll, I'll kill it. One of the things we have to realize about life in the Bible Belt 
is there are boogeymans that we're scared of. There are things that we fear that we should not fear. There are things that concern us that are not meant to concern us. They're imaginative. They're fake. They're satanic ploys. And grace is a boogeyman slayer. Around the time of the Reformation and even today in the Bible Belt and even in the dark corners of our hearts at times, we have this suspicion or this fear or this idea that our obedience will get us in a better standing with God. That if I do this or if I don't do this, God will love me more. If I do this or don't do this, I'll definitely have more grace and more blessings in my life. If I do something God wants, God will give me what I want. That we have to go to church. That we have to read the Bible. We have to pray so we can be on God's good side. As though God is some kind of stray dog that if you throw him a bone, he'll leave you alone. Guys, grace alone reminds us that outside of Jesus Christ, we are not almost good enough. We don't need him just to help us out a little bit. Or that we're good people and we just need Jesus to help carry us till the end. No, grace kills all of those thoughts. Grace kills the idea that we can be good enough, that we're smart enough, and that we'll ever be good enough. We have to understand, number one, about God's grace is that it operates without any human variables. No human quality or achievement activity can bring on God's grace in your life. No skin color. No IQ puts you in a better position to receive God's grace. Not a number of sins. Well, I didn't sin as much as this guy. I didn't sin as much this week as I did last week. And no severity of sin. Well, I didn't, I've never done that. I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery, so surely I'm better than this person. I've never stolen anything large. What we have to understand about grace is that none of those factors weigh in about whether or not we receive God's grace. Grace is always unobligated. So before the Reformation, people thought you could do certain things. You could say certain things. You could attend certain things. You could even pay certain things, and you would get God's grace, and it'd be guaranteed. And they'd even give you a piece of paper that shows you have received God's grace. But the Bible is clear that salvation is by grace and not by works, as Romans 11 says. If salvation, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You degrace grace when you think you can smuggle in something you can do. But Romans 3 tells us, as Paul says, look, I'm a Jew, but that doesn't mean I'm better off than you. Romans 3, 9 through 11. So he's writing to Gentiles, people like us. What then? Are Jews any better off? Am I in a better position? Paul says, not at all. For we have all charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Jewish people and everybody else, we are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Paul says, we're all sinners. No one has done anything good. There is no one good. No, not one. So even when we say things like, man, that's a good guy, we mean usually he's a nice person. He's not an axe murderer. I mean, these are kinds of things that we typically mean. He's not a sociopath as far as I can tell. But really, it's like, that's a nice evil person. That's a nice unrighteous person. This is the way the Bible speaks. None is righteous. And he even concludes further in verse 22. 
for there is no distinction. He says, there, there is no human quality. There is nothing up within us that makes God go, yep, he should be saved. Yep, because of this, he did this. He definitely deserves my grace. No, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, of God's standard. So how in the world are we saved? We're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how are we saved? That grace as a gift. This is why Paul calls it later in chapter 6, the, chapter 5, the free gift. You got to think about gifts. We don't understand, like, free gift and gift. Like, what does that mean? Aren't gifts always free? Well, no. Because if I give you something, what do you immediately feel? Oh, I need to get him something. It ain't free. You feel obligated now. And, well, you get gifts, what, on your birthday? Because you're supposed to. It's obligated. You have to get a gift. It's Christmas. You have to get a gift. So this free gift from God, it's not like, oh, it's salvation day. Here we go. Here come the gifts. It's unobligated, free gift. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can only believe it and receive it, that Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again from the dead. And it's ours forever. This is what Romans, 1, Romans 5, 1 to 5 is showing us, grace then and now. Sola gratia doesn't mean you just you have grace and you kind of move on into works. No, it's grace from A to Z. I mean, there's so much in the Bible we could think about God's grace. It's all over the Bible. It spans from Genesis 1 on into eternity. It goes even before Genesis 1. As we read this morning, Ephesians 1 says that before the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian this morning, before the foundation of the world, God put his grace on you. He had already decided to save you before you had done anything. He had already decided to save you, to choose you. His sovereign grace. For God to speak, let there be light, was grace. For God to pull out Abraham was grace. Why, why Abraham and not some other moon worshiper? It's grace. Why Moses, a murderer? God's grace. Why David, measly little shepherd boy who can strum a harp? Grace, unless he's a really good harp player. Why you? Why me? Grace. Jesus coming to earth, dying. Grace. And whenever you die and you fly into eternity or Jesus returns, and instead of you going to hell and dying forever, and, but instead of that, having eternal life in the new Jerusalem, why? Grace. And this grace isn't just a one-time event. It's forever. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we are saved, declared righteous by faith. We'll see that next week. Faith alone. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. By grace. We'll see this more in a minute, why this matters. But So why do we remember sola gratia? Why do you remember today grace alone? I think right here. You have peace with God. That keeps me sane. That God and I are not at odds anymore. I'm no longer an enemy. I'm not on his bad side. I'm not at war with God. Keeps me sane, keeps me joyful, keeps me glad in Christ because we have peace. That's why he says later we can rejoice. But look at verse 2. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access. What are we accessing to what? Well, by faith, that's the vehicle. But what do, we, what do we have access into? Into this 
grace, this undeserved salvation, this unobligated rescue. And look, it's past tense, right? We have obtained. So you, you have it. It's done. But grace isn't done. I mean, we, we talk about amazing grace, and usually we're going to sing it later, and we t- usually we always think past tense. That saved a wretch like me. That's true. I'm not faulting John Newton, an amazing song at all, but we also have to remember it's, it's saving a wretch like me. I'm sustained by this grace. His grace is sufficient for me. Because what does Paul say next? We have access by faith into this grace in which we stood. No. Which we stand. So even right now, we are positionally secure in Christ because of his grace. It's where we stand. It's where we are. We're geolocated into his grace. And what does that make us do? We rejoice. We rejoice. So you've got to see the dynamics of grace. You received it, you obtained, you obtained it, you stand on it, you rejoice. But here's how you know you understand God's grace. You're rejoicing. You're not rejoicing, don't understand it. That you're standing in it, you've obtained it, and you're going to stand in it forever. We don't start with grace and then finish by works. That's what's happening in Galatians. We don't start with Jesus and then he's looking at us and going, all right, matters, it's all up to you. Let's, let's see how far you can get. I'm, I'm here if you need me. No, it's, it's Jesus the whole way. Have you ever thought about why am I a Christian? Why, why did I believe? My siblings didn't. My friends didn't. Why? His grace. The Bible says in John 1, we were born not of blood, not family line, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Now, have you ever thought, why do I stay a Christian? We all sin. Why did I stay a Christian? Why did I stay a Christian and then this other person who professed to be a believer and they walked away? Why did I stay one? Why did I wake up a Christian today? Why will I wake up a Christian tomorrow? His grace. The Bible says in Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's only His grace. It's not because you're strong enough. It's not because you're smart enough. It's not because you've memorized more verses than the guy who fell away. It's by His grace. His grace gives us a reason, a perpetual, non-cooling reason to rejoice. And we we need help rejoicing and, and understanding what is grace, what is it? That's one of the problems, I think, in evangelical Bible Christianity. We use a lot of Bible words, but we don't know what they mean. What are they? So let's let's get a portrait of grace. Let's define grace. And I think verses 6 through 11 show us here, this is what the grace is. First of all, grace is the, it's Jesus himself. It's not just a, an energy. It's not just like this amorphous blob of feelings. We, we talk about grace this way. But Titus 2, Paul says, and the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's Jesus. It's one of his nicknames. It, he is the literal embodiment of grace. But how, how do we talk about grace in our culture? You may have heard a definition of unmerited favor. That's good. That's common, good definition. But it's just not, it's not words that we use. Who said the word unmerited this week? Who has said the word favor this week? No one. Unless, hey, can you do me a favor? <laughs> um, 
How about unmerited favor? No, no one has said these phrases this week. Those are just two words we don't use very often. But how often do we say the word grace? We say it all the time. Ah, man, give me some grace here. Usually, I mean, give me some slack. Let me off the hook. That's usually what we mean. Ah, let him off the hook. Is that how God's grace works? Not at all. We're not just let off the hook. Someone gets on the hook for us. Three nails on the hook for us. Ah, show me some grace. Show them some grace. Be gracious. Usually, translate. don't be a jerk. That's what that means. So when God's being gracious to us, is he not being a jerk to us? No. Would you say grace? <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> Jesus. I mean, like, what? We need to recover the core of what grace is and what it means. Grace is unconditional love. Grace is unobligated blessing. Grace is unobligated gift to you. I love how author Paul Zoll describes it. He says, what is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. My one-sentence definition of what grace is, grace is one-way love. Grace depends on the fact that its origin is wholly outside of yourself. Grace is one-way love. It's God, His love, His mercy, His kindness, His godness, His salvation, His rescue, right at us. There is no way up the street. Only He can come down. Not us to God, only God to us. Salvation, we think, is like a two-lane road. There's, you know, two, two-way, three-lane, three two-way. Two of God, you know, he's got more room, and then us. And we can kind of go back and forth. This is not how it works. It's a one-way road. And it's not like we're, you're stalled out on your car on the side of the road, and God's going, okay, I'll back up and come and get you, and you can hitchhike with me and the rest of it. That's not salvation. We're not stalled on the side of the road. We are face down in the ditch, car flipped over, on fire, and we've been dead for days. And God comes down at expense to himself, and he rescues us. This is what Romans 5, 6 through 11 is showing. Look at verse 6. So what is this grace? I think verses 6 through 11 is he's unpacking verse 2, that into this grace. So what is this grace? Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, we were still weak. At the perfect time, what did he do? He made us strong. No. That's a lot of prosperity teaching. He makes you strong, gives you blessing. No, what does he do? He dies for the sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. Okay, so we got to see about grace. How are we described? We are not victors, we are not champions. What are we outside of Christ? How are we described in verse 6? Weak and ungodly. We're weak and ungodly. I hope you're encouraged. you got to be. If you're not encouraged by being weak and ungodly, then you don't know grace. We are weak and ungodly. Without Jesus, we're helpless. We have no strength. We have no power. We have no spiritual vitality. We are spiritually pathetic people. We are constant disappointments. This is a great pick-you-up Sunday message. 
We have no power. And if you feel that way today, you're not weird. You're human. This is the human condition, the broken, sinful, in Adam human condition. If you're ungodly, you heard the word ungodly and you kind of recoiled within your heart. Look, you're not at the wrong place. You're at the right place. I'm glad you're here. You, you might be milliseconds away from encountering Christ. The one who, while you were still weak, at the right time, he didn't misfire. He died for the ungodly. Because Jesus only saves those who are weak. He only saves the ungodly. Grace is for weak people. Grace is for not the strong. Grace is for the ungodly. He dies in our place for our sins. The strongest man in the universe dies in our place. The godliest man ever, God in flesh, dies for the ungodly and our sins. Took on our ungodliness. Why? When, we, when you ask why more, you're getting to the heart of the Bible. Why? 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 Verse 8. But God shows his love. To show his love. That while God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God shows his one-way love. And oh, how God loves us. What are we? We are weak. We are ungodly, spiritually pathetic people. And God looks on us in love and dies for us in the Son of God, grace alone. And Paul lays that on thick. Okay, weak, ungodly. Let's add another one. Sinner. Paul's highlighting the woe factor of God's grace for us. He loves weak, ungodly sinners. If you don't believe that about God, then you don't know God. You haven't encountered God. He loves weak, ungodly sinners like you and like me. He spills his blood for weak, ungodly sinners like you and like me. Making us right, justifying us, saving us. But saving us from what? Verse 9. Since therefore, because we talk about salvation, you've got to be saved. Are you saved? What do we save from? Our sin, yes, but particularly what? We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him, Christ alone, from what? The wrath of God. This is old school gospel preaching right here. Just the wrath of God. Hell, eternal torment and punishment in hell forever, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where we are punished forever under the weight of our sin and the glory of God. It is not the wrath of Satan. It is the wrath of God. Satan does not rule hell. God does. But by Christ, we're saved from it. It's as though the lightning bolt of God's wrath swerved away from us and landed on the cross of Christ like this cosmic lightning rod diverting the wrath of God, and now we never taste a drop of it. We never experience God's wrath. If you are a Christian, you will never experience, feel, taste a single nanosecond of God's wrath. You will be disciplined. To be disciplined is not to be on God's bad side. Because the Bible says he disciplines those whom he loves. So even to be disciplined, to be corrected, to be found out as a Christian, to have our sins exposed, to, to confess and to repent, th these are not acts of hate. These are acts of love. 
And now, what does the Bible say? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. By what? By our good works. No. By our prayer. By our sinner's prayer. No. We are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And now we're reconciled with God. As Paul said at the beginning, this is why we have peace with God. We're not at odds with God anymore. Everything is fine between us and the holy triune God. This means right now in Christ, you and God are at peace. You can never be at more peace with God than you are right now. So you didn't read your Bible yesterday. You're not at odds with God now. Okay, you, don't, you didn't memorize the scriptures you wanted to. You sinned last night. If you're in Christ, you are still at peace with God. You may not be experiencing the peace of God. You, you might be working through discipline, and, but relationally, reconciliation, where you stand with God, you cannot be more reconciled with God than you are right now. He doesn't just let bygones be bygones either. This isn't how this works. Yeah, I just let him off the hook. No. A relational rift is fixed by the lifeless corpse of Christ and his body coming back to life again. We are enemies, but no more because of Christ. You see how Paul keeps laying on, here's what we are, this is why we need grace. We are weak, we are ungodly, we are sinners, we are enemies of God. And he saves us by grace. A weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy does not deserve anything. This is all unobligated grace. I mean, think about the contrast of those, of weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy. Think about the contrast, okay? I would think a strong, moral, exemplary, and a trustworthy friend. Who are you more willing to give grace to? A weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy of yours? Or are you, gonna, are you willing to give more grace to someone who's strong, moral, who's exemplary, who's a trustworthy friend? I eh, just kind of botched it a little. We're more willing to give grace to the second. But God says, not me. I give grace to the weak, to the sinner, to the ungodly, to my enemy. And so maybe here today you're thinking, good, because that's me. I'm a really big sinner. I'm really ungodly. I've been at odds with God my whole life. His grace is available to you. Does it seem appealing to you? God isn't surprised by your weakness. God isn't surprised by your ungodliness. He's not surprised even by your strong opposition to Him. His grace is available to you on one condition. There really is only one condition. That you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead. And by his wounds, you can be healed. All of the questions you have. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about abortion? What does the Bible say about this? All of those can be worked out in discipleship. The only thing you must bother yourself with today is at the right time, did Christ die for my sins? And did he rise again from the dead? And if you believe that, and if you're a Christian, you're like, yes, I so believe that. I believe that portrait of grace so what does grace do? For, what does sola gratia do for me today? What does grace alone do for me today? Grace reigns for our newness of life. So how do we live now? Well, we don't have time to go through the rest of chapter 5 because there's just so much here. We could be here for, for weeks. But what Paul is doing, he's showing how Adam was our representative man. And how because he sinned, now we all sinned. 
you and I did not become sinners because we sinned once. We sinned once because we are sinners. See, first, it's a kind of old chicken and egg thing. We did not give birth to sins because, oh, look, we became a chicken, you know, all this kind of stuff going on. And no, we were sinners first, and then we sinned. That's our condition in Adam. But he says now in Jesus, everything changes. Jesus is the better Adam. He didn't sin. And you can be born again. That's what the Bible uses that language. You can be born again. You can be born again into the lineage of Christ. You can be born again into new life in Christ. That's why Paul calls it the free gift. Look at verse 15. But the free gift, you've got to have the word free there because it cuts all strings off. No strings attached. No obligation. No, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The free gift is not like the trespass. Well, how, Paul? For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Man, I love that phrase, how the free gift by grace of that one man. All it takes is one righteous man for his grace and his righteousness to abound for many. Jesus is so awesome. His righteousness, I mean, he is cracked open on the cross the source of grace, the source of security, our salvation cracked open for millions of people. All it takes is that one man, and we have a mega Christ. So why did Jesus do this? Why did God do this? Why this free gift? Why this no strings attached? Why? Here it is. There is no explanation. The explanation is that there is no human explanation, which is what we want so desperately. I want to, why? Why, why, why? Eventually, you get to the point, like when my little girl keeps asking, why? Why can't we go to the coffee shop? Why can't I go get a muffin? Why? Can't, why? 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 You have homework. Well, why? Because you're going to school. Why? Because you asked why so many times. That's why we're not doing it anymore. <laughs> we get like that with God, and eventually it comes up to, you can't understand it. There is no human explanation. The explanation is that there is no human explanation except that a divine one that I am gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He did it because he wanted to. And it abounded, the Bible says, for many. I love that. God, that I love that old hymn, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than what? Just my sin? No. The hymn says, greater than all our sin. Abounding for many. What, what Adam did, just think about your life. Okay, we'll just take my life. I have negative 1,000 amount of sins. Let's do that. We, don't, we usually think God's grace now, okay, Jesus comes in and he takes me to zero. I'm at, I'm at a zero balance now, a neutral balance. And now it's all up to me. That's not Christianity. It's your negative 1,000s all taken care of, and now you are given infinite righteousness in Christ. This is why the one man's obedience is not like the man's disobedience. Because now it is infinite. It is eternal. It is righteousness forever, and it abounds for many. We could spend hours thinking about abounded and the many. I mean, just think about the many. This is what amazes me about Jesus is all the kinds of people he saves, the weak, the ungodly, the ancient. You can go from Adam to the very last person written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the modern the postmodern, generation X, Y, millennial, the young, the old, people on death row, 
thief on the cross, the sleazy politician, the drunk suburbanite, the drug-addicted CEO, the racist, the goody-two-shoes, the atheist, the porn-addicted wife, the Brazilian, the German, the Mexican, the Scott. I mean, you can go on and on. The many, God's grace cracked open in Christ Jesus, abounded for the many. And it's available to everyone in this room. They will go to him and believe. Death doesn't have to reign over you. That's verse 17. For if because the one man's trespass, death reigned, well, what about the other man? Through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace in the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Right now, this second, Paul says the abundance of grace and righteousness in Christ defines your life. I mean, right now, I mean, right now, my life, all of it is now defined by the grace of God, by the perfection and righteousness of Christ. God looks at me. He doesn't see matters account. He sees Christ, his life, his righteousness. It's even clearer in verse 19. You, you got to grab verse 19. 19, I think, makes you, helps you understand the gospel even more. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam and the fruit and the garden, that many were made sinners. So by the one man, Jesus, his obedience, the many will be made righteous. How are you righteous? Not your obedience. No one man's. Christ alone. By Jesus' obedience are we made righteous. Sola gratia. Nothing we can do. Grace alone. Nothing we can add. Nothing we do changes our standing with God. How are we saved? How are we made righteous? Money? No. Good deeds? No. Following a code? No. Religious duties? Programs? No. The obedience of Christ. And grace abounded all the more. Obedience to what? Philippians 2 says he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Him hanging on that tree. Holy Jesus and only Jesus. You're accepted by Jesus. You're in a good standing with God right now if you believe. Because of Jesus only. Forever. Listen, this, the Bible's saying it wasn't your obedience that got you here. Therefore, it can't be your disobedience that gets you out. His obedience brought us in. And it's his obedience that keeps us in. We can't get out of it. So here, here's why. Here's why I said this brings peace. This brings calm. This brings joy. This brings saneness and serenity. Because I'm safe in Jesus. I sin. I get angry. I say dumb things to my wife and my kids. I get impatient. I go over the speed limit. I still sin. I still fall short of the glory of God, except for the obedience of Jesus Christ. Am I saved? And, you know, whenever our family, whenever we fly, we have access to the United Club, and you got to have the card or the account to get in. You don't have it. You're not getting in. And people always try to smooth talk. I mean, whenever time I'm checking, people, oh, I don't know why I didn't renew. That's weird. Last person just let me in. And they go, no, they didn't. I can see that you've never had an account. You, you can't get in. Oh, that's weird. It's not weird. You need to go. 
And we're checking in one time and a family, like a big family comes in. And we do have, you get like two, you can bring in like two friends. Well, they were trying to bring like five people. And we've had this problem before too, and they wouldn't give us any slack. And so we're coming in and they bring in their grandma in a wheelchair. And they're going, you don't have enough passes, you can't get in. But, you know, we were here, I have an account, I know, but your account's not sufficient. You have to go. But we, we just brought my grandmother in the wheelchair up. You're going to make us leave? Uh-huh. You have an elevator. You, you brought it up. It's easy to go back down. You, have, you can't come in. They wouldn't even let in the grandma with a wheelchair. Like, this is hardcore. Salvation, really? The heavenly gates with Christ Jesus? If you don't have him on your account, it ain't happening. You must be saved by Christ alone. No smooth talking, no effort, no morality is going to get you in. It's grace alone. And here's why it matters. You coming to church today didn't get you in a better standing with God. You not reading your Bible yesterday didn't get you in a worse standing with God. I'm not in a better position with God because I'm a pastor. And you're not in a lesser position with God because you're not a pastor. And yet I hear people say stuff like this all the time. Oh, let's ask one of the pastors to pray. They got a direct line. So do you. <laughs> we have the same source, the same rock, the same security, the same confidence, the same amount of obedience that is on my account is on yours too. Christ alone, that's how we're made righteous. You take the most mature Christian you can think of, missionary, translated the Bible, whatever, whatever you want to put in there, the most amazing thing you could think of, has the whole Bible memorized, and you take the thief on the cross, new baby Christian, whatever, they have the exact same amount of righteousness applied to their account. Jesus of Nazareth. Is that your confidence? You miss the mark when you think, I got to read my Bible so I can get his grace. No, no, no. You're reading it from grace, not to get grace. Grace leads us into newness of life. That's really verse 6-1. What shall we say then? So now what? Am I going to sin? I can just do whatever I want. No, no. It's verse 4. We walk in newness of life. And then it's verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. To be gracious and to be grace-centered, it does not mean we never use the word must. Must is not a legalistic word. We use the word must where the Bible uses the word must. We don't bring in our own mustiness. We bring in the Bible's. The Bible says you must consider yourself dead to sin, so do it. We're empowered to do that by His grace. Grace is concerned about our sins. You must consider yourself dead to sin. So right now, the sins that are circling about your life right now, like sharks circling chum in the ocean, they're just circling your life. Here's what you must do, the Bible says. You hold a funeral, and you have an open casket funeral. You open up the casket, you look at your sins, and you poke their dead eyes. And say, That's, I'm dead to that sin. And I'm alive in Christ Jesus, my Lord. We sin because we don't believe that. And we don't do that. So what happens if we sin? We repent, we confess, we believe, we hold another funeral. You're dead. And I'm alive in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And we live accordingly. We believe we've earned not salvation, We've earned nothing. We believe we have received unearned favor, that we've received unobligated grace, that we've received unearned one-way love for weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. 
all because of the obedience of Jesus applied to our account. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. These are the three boogeyman slayers of the Bible, though, and of my heart, too, and I hope yours. Let's pray together.